Vulture's Good One podcast is sponsored by HBO's Crashing, starring Pete Holmes. The new comedy series, co-created by Holmes and Judd Apatow, draws on their experience as comedians, offering a behind-the-scenes look at the unpredictable world of stand-up comedy. Guest stars include Artie Lang, T.J. Miller, Sarah Silverman, and Hannibal Burris. Catch HBO's Crashing Sundays at 10.30 p.m. Welcome to Good One, Vulture's new podcast about jokes and the people who tell them. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each week, I have a comedian, comedy writer, or director on to play and talk about one of their jokes. This week's guest is Kyle Kinane. So three of the hardest times I probably have ever, ever laughed was at a Kyle Kinane show. Actually, one of those times, the second time, I actually almost had to leave midway through because I thought I was going to throw up from laughing so hard. But I didn't leave and I didn't throw up. For this episode, he actually picked a joke from his debut album, Death of the Party, which was a real thrill for me because that was like a seminal album for me when I was getting back into comedy. So I always loved comedy and I used to use a fake ID to go to comedy shows when I was a teenager. But I became like really obsessed with it again in like 2008, 2009 after I saw Hannibal Burrs and then Kyle Kinane at successive Comedy Death Ray live shows in L.A. And so that, from that point on, I was, I, I was hooked and I, I still am. So I must have listened to Death of a Party like a hundred times that year. So all of Kyle's subsequent specials are must-watches, in my opinion. But you're about to hear the joke that kind of changed everything for him, that basically all of his future jokes kind of fed from. And you're going to think it's great. And now I'm going to play it, and here's that joke. So enjoy the joke that Kyle will be telling to you. Hey, anybody ever make that mistake, like right when you wake up in the morning and you believe in yourself? I've been having the tendency to do that a lot lately. <coughs> I, uh, I go to work every day. I work at, uh, work at 8 a.m. Well, that's when my alarm clock goes off at 8 a.m. It's really 7.15, but 12 years ago, I thought I would trick myself. <laughs> my alarm clock goes off at 8 o'clock. Uh, I have a big digital alarm clock. I thought it would be louder and more effective. Uh, it's a big display. Eight o'clock on a digital alarm clock just looks like the word boo. It's, it's just like Sanyo's trying to give you a preemptive thumbs down to your day before you can even get out the gate. And, you know, the catch, the catch is you can't let it bother you. You, know, you just got to spring out of bed, spring out lively with enthusiasm. I jump out of bed naked, don't picture it. Jump out, throw my blinds open, say, good morning, world. Good news for you, this package is already unwrapped. You're welcome. <laughs> I start to greet the objects that are in my room, just the stuff laying around. But you got to practice your social skills for your day. You can't just not say anything from the time you wake up to the time you get to work, because you got a lot of dream residue floating around. you got to exercise that stuff out of your system. If you don't, you're gonna, you're just, you're gonna, like, you're not gonna say anything. You're gonna keep quiet around your stuff, and you're gonna get to work. And your supervisor is already kind of have a little self-esteem issue. Is gonna come by and say, "Hey, Kyle, how's your weekend?" And you're gonna yell at something like, "You look like the dragon that fucked my dad." And you, you can't say that to the place that's giving you health insurance right now.
You know, just get it out of your system. Walk around, pace around, pick your points out. Clean laundry, folded, looking sharp. Nice work, guys. I like it. Dirty laundry. I see ya. You're all right. I'll get you on the weekend. You're fine. You're okay. I get into my bathroom, and uh, as was with my ritual, I start with my morning pose down, starting to make sure everything's looking dialed in. Now it helps. At some point, I had written the word champion on my bathroom mirror with chapstick. Now don't. I really can't go into explaining why I did it, but. It makes for a whole, like, the reflection. It's like a baseball card, whatever. You know what I mean? You understand. <laughs> I'm looking at that, and I'm starting to feel good about myself to the point where I'm like, I know I don't exercise. I'm starting to get, there's got to be some kind of other force at work. There's got to be a chisel somewhere in this bathroom that was used to sculpt this work of art. <laughs> and due to the inevitable hangover, I'll start looking for a chisel. I'll open drawers. Medicine cabinets. Uh, don't find a chisel in the bathroom. Of course not. Why would there be a chisel in my bathroom? What there is uh, present at all times in there, though, is a garbage can overflowing with Del Taco wrappers. <laughs> that's when the wave of reality washes over me. And I remember, oh yeah, Adonis, you want to know how you really live your life? Yeah, what you do is you come home at five in the morning shithoused, and you eat a half a dozen quesadillas while you sit on the toilet and read books about werewolves. Oh. Okay. Yeah. How you feel now, Hercules? Well, well, I feel like getting back into bed. It's about boo 30. Could show up just late enough to work to where they won't fire me. I am here with the man behind that joke, Mr. Kyle Kinane. What? Oh, <laughs> uh, so that that was from your your first <clears throat> album, which I think you recorded probably eight years ago. What is it like to hear that now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a it's been a while. Uh, I think I recorded that two weeks after I quit my day job in two thousand nine. I quit my job. Yeah, I wanted to start, what was the kind of context of where were you at mentally and physically right when that was recorded? I was, yeah, it was the summer of 2009. I had just quit my office job. I was, I was closed captioning television and uh, was getting to the point like, okay, I'm getting weekend. I'm getting enough work being a comedian. You have to decide like, well— do I not take work because this job's paying me okay? And not, not even okay. It was still just an entry-level job, but the yeah. place was nice and insurance. It's like, no, I moved away from my family and friends to come here to be a comedian, not to, you know, scale the, the corporate ladder. So I just quit, and then I was, recorded that. And uh, I remember not even knowing what to think because I, I wasn't even – on the road as a headlining comedian. It's just you have all your bits. You have your collection of 10-minute sets that you do around town. And a special thing was nice. And they're like, do you want to do a record with us? I was like, well, if you're asking me to do it, I'll do it. But I didn't – I wasn't going around like, I really want to put a record out. This stuff's all ready to be on a record. It was them asking me. And I was like, well, I've seen the – you know, at that time – and still their roster is always just really – just comedians I respect and look up to and, you know, who they're affiliated with. I'm like, well, if they're asking me, I got to say yes. 
So I better get these 10-minute sets glued together somewhat. <laughs> so, some like, I need to fool the audience enough to make it look like it's an hour of actual material. So what's the longest set you had been had done kind of before then? I had probably done lo- like a few longer sets here and there and maybe headlined here or there. But it was still the same thing. It was just this personal greatest hits compilation of several notebooks spanning you know, however long, you know, you, that's a, your first album is, it's your whole career. It's, it's the best hits since you started comedy. So there was jokes in there from when I, you know, two years into comedy. There was jokes in there that was eight years old, nine years old. So, yeah, how long had you been doing comedy at, at to that point? Ten years. I started in 1999. I started in Chicago. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so I had some old ones like, oh, well, this is still good. I mean, I don't do it a lot, but this is, this is, this one's good. We could dust this one oh, off. Phillips. There's a joke. I think it's the first joke. It sounded not even like you were, like, doing the voice that I imagined was the voice you did when you first started. Like, it yeah. felt a little bit like Mitch Hedberg. Oh, yeah. I really, I really aped Hedberg early on. <laughs> was like, I think it's the joke you opened in, which was, like, you could find like pets from oh, a pet shelter. Oh yeah, if, if you get if you get a new pet from the animal shelter, you're a hero. But if you insist on getting your new girlfriend from the women's shelter, and I just bail on it because yeah. like it's that's kind of been a thing now. Like if the, I put the dumbest joke first, so if it bombs, good, yeah. good job, audience. <laughs> that joke was stupid, and if you're laughing at how stupid it is, that also puts me at ease. I've said something that I'm not relying on to be great, but I've gotten the the motor started, much like the joke about you got to start talking right away in the morning. You know, get get all your parts connected, yeah. get all your systems synced up. You got it's like this is a comedy show; it's not all going to be. Yeah, like okay, that my mouth works, the mic works. That's more of my you know one two three four checking the microphone. <laughs> and how long have you been in LA at that point? Uh, that I would have been here about six years. Got yeah, it. summer of '03 is when I got to town. So. You know, a lot of the record, I think, is about a person about to quit their day job. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, like, a certain amount of, like, you know, what was your emotional state? Because, like, if someone just heard the record, you'd be like a guy that's, like, trying to get through. Yeah. But, like, what were you, you know, what was, you know, what was Kyle like, you being Kyle? Well, that's me. Yeah. You mean me? Yeah. Yeah, what were you like? <laughs> well, because I had written all that stuff, <clears throat> a, a majority of it, at these demeaning day jobs that I had and I think that's that's what resonated real well at the time cuz I didn't hear a lot of other people ragging on student loan debt and also the idea that, like what if your dreams are dumb and <laughs> yeah. uh oh well like okay dumb dreams and I'm going to make $12 an hour for the rest of my life so I either be sad about it or just fine Small, whimsical, uh, you know, imagined occurrences in life. You know, weird little wood sprites coming up telling me to talk to my laundry to just get through how basic my life is. So that that was the attitude of writing a lot of that stuff. Uh, You know, the one joke that it's in the theme of everything else, but it's about if you ever – been so lonely, you sleep on your couch instead of your bed because it feels like you're laying next to somebody. <laughs> I was real proud of that one, and that was me and my friend trying to outsad each other. So instead of playing the dozens where you like make fun of somebody or do mom jokes back and forth, yeah, it was who was more depressed. But we were just going back and forth, and that was mine. I'd be, I remember it was my friend Matt Dwyer, and he'd like, "Well, I have sex with t-shirts on." I'm like, "I sleep on the couch, so I feel like I'm laying next." To it. it was a blast from going back and forth, seeing who was more depressed. 
So this joke in particular, or this this section of a joke, do you remember kind of when the first part of it happened? Like how much how much earlier than when you recorded? Yeah, I, the waking up and believing yourself, believing in yourself was just. I think I, I had that part while I was driving somewhere where I was, you know, I was trying to figure out you have to remember, oh, you gotta have a voice as a comedian. What's the, what's your voice? And all it's like, I don't know, I write the joke. It's the longest time I was <clears throat> I was writing jokes that I wasn't attached to. Yeah. You can write a, a structurally sound joke that yeah, that has the rhythm of a joke, there's the setup, there's a punchline. And I see people get pissed off like well, nobody laughs at it. It's cause like nobody cares. Like just because it looks you can write a song mathematically. It doesn't mean it's going to be a good song. You can do the same thing with a joke. You can you can break it down into algebra and fill in all the letters. You have a joke, but it's not good. And uh, that's kind of how I would would write and was observational. And then 2007, I went to the HBO Aspen Comedy Festival and was a new face there, and I bombed. And, uh, I, yeah, I bombed, I thought that was the end of my career. And I, and I know Galifianakis had said a similar story about this, like when his TV show failed, he's like, oh, I had my, sh- my shot, and it's gone, and now it's this world of absolute freedom. Like, oh, I, I did, I got the shot, and I blew it, so now I get to talk about whatever. I don't have to worry about alienating an audience. And I'm uh, hardly, is something edgy, but, like, oh, I could just get up there, and, like, that's... 2007, that's when the beard came in. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not trying to look good for anybody. I just clicked over 30. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm not not going out for young roles. My hair's already thinning, so may as well just live in my pajamas. Like, everything's short of just wearing a swimsuit out every yeah. day. So I, the beard, I was like, really started embracing that. Like, and just, yeah, oh, you make the mistake where you believe in yourself, which was just, like, the whole attitude, like, Man, remember when you really moved out here and you thought you were going to make it? You're dumb. Yeah. Anyway, I still got a show tonight, and um, this is how I feel. So yeah. I started writing a lot more from how I felt as opposed to, well, it's a joke. Look at it on paper. There's yeah. a clear punchline. That's interesting. So it almost felt like you, you, you both you're in life and on on stage, you became more the person that you were going to be on stage. Yeah. Yeah, it really <laughs> turned into, instead of worrying about what the actual wording of the joke was, it was like, what's... What's the mood right now? And the mood was just, I can show up late to work. I, I I was the perfect example of I did, I didn't do well enough to get promoted, but I did enough to not get fired. So if I stayed in that area, and uh, th- that was the position in life I was in, and uh, yeah, going out and doing shows every night and being like, well, hey, uh, I guess I'm just going to pay student loan back for until I die. And all that. a lot of people in the audience are like, oh, that's... Yeah, that's what we're doing too. Like talking about how how bullshit my creative arts degree was, and it was everybody that moved out. It was like, oh yeah, it's the same thing. We all did the same thing. Uh, it is interesting that you know I think a lot of people knock LA is not a place to like grow as a stand up, but it almost feels like it was the right place for you to be. Like, there's a lot of people that are moving, a lot of millennial age ish people. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we're allowed to follow our dreams. We're the generation that follows our dreams, <sighs> and then you're doing the comedy of like, yeah, maybe you should it. Yeah, maybe your dreams are dumb, <laughs> but I I will I'll defend Los Angeles to any, because there is okay I I it's easily hateable, which is why I want to defend it. It's lazy to come here and hate LA right away. You're lazy. You're lazy when you do that. There's so much here, and I'm surrounded by a city of people who do have dreams, 
And what a better, and I would rather be around a bunch of dreamers than a bunch of people who are like, what well, dreams, like, yeah, maybe if you're 16, but if you're 19, get rid of dreams and get a job. Like, that's way more depressing than people with failed dreams still yeah. pursuing their dreams. I'd rather see a 50-year-old waiter in a restaurant going, yeah, I got an audition tomorrow, than I would see a 28-year-old with three kids going, well, there was no other option. There was nothing else I could have done in life. Yes, there was. You uh, literally just summarized the entire plot of La La Land. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that does kind of... That's how I busted my knee. I was dancing up on Mulholland Drive. <laughs> yeah. You know me, a big tap dancer. So you said you, you first thought of kind of the that mm-hmm. part of the joke, driving. So kind of there's each part of there's a moment. You kind of walk out of your bed. Mm-hmm. How did the specifics of it evolve? Did you kind of have a lot of it ahead of it? Or do you kind of just like, were you riffing it? Did you, yeah. did you, you know, you mentioned how you sort of kind of had jokes that worked on paper and then you kind of just talked, talked off the top of your head. How do, do you kind of remember how this one kind of came together? Well, I, I basically, I guess the thesis of that was the waking up and believing in yourself, which I was just like, oh, that's a good, that's a good open. Now, how do you back <laughs> it up? And I was very much so in a, I don't think I was ever depressed. I think I was bummed out, but I also realized that the cure for that was to go out every night and talk about being bummed out. So then afterwards, I felt good. <laughs> so I was never, I don't think I, I could ever dip into depressions because I, as long as I had shows and the shows went all right, it kept me afloat. But yeah, the believe in yourself thing and then the technical part of the digital alarm clock, that just came together. I'm like, it's, it's what it looks like. That's a good observation. That's an, a great observation on its own, but then it plays in with the whole theme of this. And the rest of it, I don't know. That was like a drunken swagger type thing I had at the time where if I, I was believing if I said any kind of ridiculous bullshit in a certain cadence, I could kind of pull it off. So if I if, if I could say anything, well, and here we go, everybody, I could get people to come along with me. <laughs> so that was kind of the talking of the laundry. and But that was true. At that time, I was living in Burbank. I thought I was doing great because I had two roommates, but I was in the master's bedroom with my own bathroom. I was like, you're doing pretty good, buddy. I mean, 30 years old, you got your own bathroom now? Nice. Yeah. And so I did – I was able to isolate myself more, and then I didn't know the roommates – that it, well, one pal was moved in of it, and lost it. But the, <laughs> when I moved in, it was just I needed a place to stay. So it's not like I moved in with friends. So I was isolated a lot, and I was in Burbank. All my friends were in Los Feliz or somewhere in Hollywood. So I was spending a lot of nights just ha- making my own fun, and I'm really good at that. Like I don't get lonely. Very, I mean, you you know, your heart gets lonely, and you miss having a special someone in your life. But as far as just having a night alone. I can really entertain myself. Like, I really find myself entertaining. Not outwardly all the time for other people, but as far as just having a few drinks and getting a little stoned in my room and making myself laugh by talking my laundry, I'm good at that. (laughs) I I, I can charm myself. And so I was like, what if you said some of this stuff? What if you said some of these secret giggles that you have out into the world? And so that's where the talk of the laundry bit came. I never wrote Champion on my mirror, but I thought – I always – thought like it would be a good motivation and then I never did it but it was like that's a funny idea of somebody right that was that was fictional there I still do Del Taco jokes to this day 
I love Del Taco. It's I think I think it embodies everything about California for me, of just twenty four hours of letting you ruin your body. But at that point, you were writing it down. You kind of just like were set. You kind of had. Yeah, it was kind of like oh, that's kind of a fun. It was one of those things. I think I probably did the joke without writing it down. Like oh, this is stupid, and I wandered into it on stage, and then I was like, oh, people actually laughed at this. That was that that era was a lot of just going up. And being honest first and worrying about punchlines later. Yeah. And people responded to that as opposed to like, well, I wrote this perfect joke and nobody cares. Like they can tell when you're selling it or where you just have a product versus, oh, that's a real guy with an unkempt beard who does sound like his dream shit the bed. And there's a there's a certain – but not in a negative way. Like there's a freedom there now. Like I failed. Yeah. So now I'm free to do anything. And that I think that resonated, and that gave me more confidence to do more material like that, of going like just these wandering stories about in my room, and I mean werewolves is always a fascination. So yeah, the books about werewolves are true, and <laughs> that stuff. Yeah, that, that's the real. That's reality. There's, uh, I mean, it's still to this day, but there's a uh, specific phrasings that I think it, if that define a lot of how your comedy mm. works. Um, and you know you talk about your, in, especially in the special, you talk about how you you have a creative writing background. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that helped? I mean, it's just like there's this, the words that the word choice feels so specific, and even if you're not writing it down, it feels like somewhere in your brain, someone knows how a sentence sounds nice. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you can paint a picture of a house, and you can paint it the way a house is supposed to be, and what colors you're supposed to use for a house, or you could have a Pink house with a yellow roof and a green door and the, and the grass is purple and the sky's, uh, you know, orange. It's still a house. It's still what you needed to get out there. And so I think that's how I look at language. Like, well, I could still elaborate. Like, if I just say the sentence, it's boring. And yeah. I'm bored saying it. So I don't, a lot of times, don't even know the actual meanings of the words that I'm using. I just really... With confidence, like I've heard it used in context before, and I'm like, I think this is where that word. I, I think this is where that word would fit. I'm trying to think of a specific word that I've been on lately, uh, but but just I, I think this is how you use it, and I would do a lot of that. And if I didn't get corrected, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm using like it's just it's just a little more spice in the dish, you know. You got a lot you got a lot of words out there. Everybody's yeah. doing comedy, comedy in English. I'm watching it every night. English is a broad language. I mean, we're dealing with a president right now who could use a thesaurus <laughs> and just, to ch- just to change the message yes. up. Yeah. And so that's why it's more fun to use these fun, the silly words and explore the language a little bit. Sure. Hardly from a linguistic <laughs> standpoint. I don't I'm just like, ah! It's the idea of exploring the language by, yeah. uh, Haphazard, by Haphazardly throwing adjectives around that you don't know what they mean. And, and maybe there's nothing here, but there's uh, – I thought it was interesting that – you know, you had ask these questions instead of just saying it. You know, you mm-hmm. didn't go like, "I woke up this morning, and I had this like I was." You had this mistaken belief to believe in myself. Or whatever. Yeah. You say, "You ever had that thing where?" You, I mean, there's obviously a comedy tradition to it, but there is a different way of. Did you you know? Did was it always a question? What is the value of asking it as a question opposed to kind of just starting be like, "This is who I am," instead of oh, bring well that was, I think that was actually a, a, I. May have learned that in college or was just reading something about how to 
being a more engaging conversationalist mm-hmm. that as opposed to just talking, ask the person you're speaking with, ask them questions that because that makes them engage, like that makes them listen more. Because, yeah. oh, he's asking questions. Well, I got to be on my toes then. I've got to, I've got to make sure I'm listening to the rest of it. Yeah. And it also puts them, puts the listener in the position as opposed to just, oh, this guy's self centered talking about himself. It makes it more relatable because I'm saying it with knowing the answer is probably yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you've done it enough times that enough people said yes. Yeah. They're like, oh, I get it. People feel this way. You know, it's like, oh, I was in line. There's a jerk in front of me. Well, you're just like, oh, this guy probably was the jerk. And instead of like, you ever been in a line and there's somebody in front of you and you get somebody going, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And all of a sudden you're far more engaged than you would be if you're just talking from your own standpoint outward. Do you have a favorite of the many observations listening back? Do you have a favorite one of them? Oh, of my own? Yeah, of that right now. Um, in the In this joke – in that, there's, there's those series of things. Did you have a favorite line? I still, like, when I figured out that you ever wake up in the morning and believe in yourself, like, I thought of that. I'm like, oh, this is how I can open every set. Because <laughs> like, it really did. It kind of lassoed all the jokes into one. Like, yeah. oh, this is what everybody means by voice. Like, you don't find your voice till eight to ten years into comedy is what you keep hearing from people. And this was a ten-year mark. And that summed up everything. Because now, with that with that at the top, with that theme at the top, I started writing with that in mind. Like, oh, I don't believe in myself. Defeated, but still happy about it. And started writing on, in, in that theme, writing everything to go to that statement. Yeah. And so it kind of it helped me also. Like, I, I think it's real funny. <laughs> but it also kind of helped direct my writing as opposed to, well, it's a funny joke, but it doesn't sound right. Within this whole tree of this this family of jokes that I'm writing right now, we'll be right back with more Calcanane after this word from our sponsor. So it's time for the Mitchell crashing ad read, but we're not going to be doing a recap like we usually do because we've uh, heard your cries and have now learned that a lot of you don't have time to watch Crashing on Sunday nights, but you like to watch the show. So we don't want to spoil the show for you because we love crashing, because they've been so nice to us, and we want to be nice to you. So all we're going to tell you is the season finale of Crashing is this Sunday at 10.30 on HBO. Judd Apatow's directing. Pete Holm is the titular Crashing. He plays John Crashing, a comedian about town. No, he doesn't. He plays Pete Holmes himself, but like 10 years ago. Sundays at 10.30 on HBO. It's Crashing. Get into it. Crashing. I am back with Kyle Kinane. So, you know, you mentioned that voice. So, so essentially, you you used it as like the Rosetta Stone for your, yourself, or essentially like mm-hmm. I'm that it translated yourself to almost yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's like when uh, when someone gets a tribal tattoo, and all of a sudden, the rest of their life evolves around one <laughs> facet. Like, well, I guess I got to start wearing sleeveless shirts, and it turns out I wear big chain necklaces, and I think I'm into rap rock forever. <laughs> Uh, that said as someone with terrible <laughs> tattoos, and I know, so I know what I'm talking about. But, so, yeah, that's, it, yeah. So then, also the, this bit is interesting because if, especially compared to the rest of the special, I mean, the rest of the hour, um, it's it's definitely more of a story. It's not like a full story, but it's more than kind of the rest of it. You know, was that also part of it where you're like, oh, I can kind of maybe be a little bit more anecdotal? Like, was it was it all this, like, this bit essentially used 
as like, okay, this is maybe how stylistically I would go? I think I think that <clears throat> that type of delivery and and anecdotes and stories that would get labeled like, oh, you're like a storyteller comedian. It's like, no, I just take a five minute good joke and turn it into a fifteen minute <laughs> mediocre joke. That's all it is. It's just going like, all right, well, I don't have a lot of new material, but I could take this one thing and I could beat the shit out of it for a while. And so that's what happens. Like, all right, well, I said hi to my laundry. That's silly. Well, what else would I have said if I said hi to my laundry? I'd say like, hey, you're looking good. And then I'd, I'd chastise this dirty laundry. Mm-hmm. So that's just stretching out one minor thing. Well, I already said that in my room. What else do I do in my room? I go in my bathroom. I get ready in the morning. Like, So those kind of that's, – that's, that's not really a story. It's just a group of observation. Again, things I would do in my master bedroom in Burbank because I was by myself, you know, keeping myself uh, occupied that they would all come together like that. I don't know if that answers the question as far as – No, I think it, it gets to if you think of yourself as a storyteller, which it seems like you're like – I don't. I would get the label and be like, yeah. I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds well, prestigious, I think, but – I think what it's more indicative of, you know, especially compared to – now, I listened back to Death of a Party, which I haven't really listened to as much recently, and it's like it, it is much more condensed. Like that bit is like four minutes yeah. where I think hypothetically you talk about gout for like 25 minutes <laughs> in Chicago. I remember listening. I was like, is this like a half of a one-man show about gout? <laughs> it well, it was, uh, was and still is affecting me to a great deal. So it's on my mind quite often. How have you gotten looser as you know, you've kept on continuing as a stand-up? Well, the, the more work you get, you know, now it's – if I'm going out to – in town, you get your 10-minute spots and your 12-minute spots. But now, I, you know, I make a living as a comedian primarily and it's headlining spots. It's usually an hour a night or an hour per show and an hour lets you get a lot more comfortable, a lot more – especially if the audience is on your side. If the audience, audience isn't on your side, like, okay, okay, how about this joke? It's a joke. Look, it's right there. That's the, where the joke ends. Nothing? God damn it. All right, another one. But when they're with you and you know you got an hour, you're not worried about seeing the light soon, and you can take your time. And when you can take your time, you actually get to, you know, physically or mentally put yourself into the in, into the story again as opposed to – remember the words and here's the punchline and, and it's like no I actually now that I say this I, I remember even more details and sometimes you remember details sometimes it's a, a big fish bar story <laughs> that starts getting a little more exaggerated every night you tell it and then those slowly fuse together to become facts <laughs> I've never lied but definitely stuff it, it, there's 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 a nucleus of truth inside these boulders that I have of, of uh, heavily detailed and exaggerated stories. <laughs> so, yeah, when you are making a living as a comedian, and especially if you don't like, oh, I was here a year ago. Well, if people paid money to see me last year and paid money to see this year, you should have a new story. Well, how do I do that? Well, after a year of being on the road all the time, you better be able to. Yeah. Give people a new story. That's I haven't been on the road so much. Like I'm getting nervous. I'm about to go out. I'm like, oh, I got like 20 minutes since I was back in these places. Um, does that contribute to how you've been particularly prolific these last uh, few years? You've had three specials since 2012. You had mm-hmm. two in the last two years. Yeah. Which is uh, more than most. <laughs> Do you well, think that's part of it? I mean like or, – or is there some other factors that contribute to that? 
Yeah, I think it was just being on the road so much. I mean, you'll notice when people first start going on the road, when comics first start going on the road, a lot of their material is, you know, it's airports and hotels, which mine was too, because that's your life. Yeah. At that point, whereas somebody that just has kids, their jokes are about their kids. It's, you're reporting back, you know. You're you're a journalist from a, from a from a land that nobody cares about except yourself. Yeah, and so hopefully you make it interesting enough when you report back. So that was like when you had the uh, pancakes in a yeah bag. yeah that was like two airplane stories <laughs> on that. And even I was like, man, two airplane, oh, it's a bit much. But that's what I was doing. I was flying every weekend mm-hmm. to go to shows and. I don't want to. I just turned forty, and it's. I mean, it's arbitrary number. It doesn't matter. It's how you feel. But like, I feel like I don't want to party so much. Like, I'm not trying to. You know the the embedded journalism of scumbaggery. Like, I, I don't feel like. Well, somebody's got a bag of drugs, and we're going out. And I'm like, I, yeah, I know what happens on those now. Like, I don't need. To, I mean, I still say yes to some crazy situations. But that's why I was like traveling, seeing new places, meeting a bunch of new people, saying yes to pretty much anything that would come my way. Not even just, not even horrible, scared, but just like, you want to try this? You want to see this thing? Yes. Give it, give it all to me. And when you, when your filter is comedy, like we process everything through it, then yeah, I was just constantly processing it and writing it down. And hopefully it was a funny enough joke or story to, work on stage and if an hour worked on stage well let's record it because i'm gonna forget this it's not it's never like oh here i have an hour finally i'm gonna just say this stuff for five years i'll lose my mind like as soon as a joke's done i can't stand it yeah and i'm like i get like it was more to keep my sanity like can we record it can we get it out because otherwise there's going to be new stuff coming in and just pushing it like i don't know how much material gets lost between recording dates where it's just like nope this is what i'm saying this month and we'll record cameras are on that's a special print it get it out of here i never want to do it again i won't do jokes off old if it's out there for people to get i won't do them on stage i can't i don't have the pizzazz it's fun to listen to but like i couldn't imagine trying to say that again so when is it when is a joke done they're never done so you're just like they're done when they're like the, the special is filming tonight. I'm done. Yeah. I get done. The joke's not done, but I'm sick of it. So that means it's done. It's it's not, yeah, it's not like, oh, it's so perfect now. It's just like, I, if I say this again, <laughs> you'll see my eyes roll back in my head. And you could see, I've seen comics where you could tell yeah. they're on autopilot and there's a disconnect. And I don't ever want to have that. I want to be like, no, I'm, I'm here. We're all here. Let's enjoy this together. Like, I've doing like new jokes that I'm still excited even the audience doesn't like it man I have a good time with them yeah I've seen comedians who are doing such old material they don't notice that the crowd's not laughing so they're pausing for oh, yeah and it's that is like the worst bomb where it takes them like three minutes in to realize that they're not doing well and it's not is it even a technically a bomb if they don't notice yeah. you know it's like if a tree falls in the woods if a joke falls flat but the comic was thinking about dinner doesn't, doesn't even care I've, I've had that where I've been on the road so much where I words are coming out of my mouth, and I was like, "Oh man, I'm pretty hungry. I go out later and get some food." And as I'm saying other words, and I'm like, "Wait, did I just say dinner in this joke? Like, that's not engaged. That's not how you should be performing." You know, you said this this bit kind of really 
said, like, this is the voice that is the voice that you're kind of writing towards. Do you think of it at all as a character named Kyle Kinane in so much as, like, <laughs> that's this person? Then you can kind of live a separate existence? Yeah, no, it was always pretty genuine. I do, I do see examples of, especially now, like, the sadness comedian as a big one. And I have, you know, I know people, I'm like, I think they won't allow themselves to be happy for fear of losing the act. And I was like, no, I'm because I think there's still positivity through everything I've done. I don't think it's ever been like it's a waste and blow your brains out because it doesn't get better. I think it's always been like, yeah, so what if it sucks? It doesn't mean you can't like enjoy yourself. Okay, your your major dreams aren't coming true. You can still have a good time every day and have fun with your friends. I think that theme Ran through because that's how I felt too. Like, oh, my dreams were ridiculous to begin with, and they're probably not going to come true. But my friends are pretty fun, and I don't have it that bad. I mean, you know, I got my health. I'm not, you know, you know, I, how much can you listen to a straight white man complain in America and and after a while just be like, shut the fuck up. Like you're fine, you're fine, but I'm lonely. Shut up. Go on Match.com. You'll be fine. But I never wanted to purposely. Make myself depressed in order to make the character authentic. I thought the character was authentic because that whatever I was saying on stage wasn't mm-hmm. pure depression. Yeah, I think that is the, a theme as a person who's followed your career. That kind of there's always hope in the face of despair, and then there's like less despair <laughs> as your career's been getting better. Yeah, and you know that you'd be like, comedy's going pretty good. Yeah, I don't want to be fake. I mean, then you just become Larry the Cable Guy. You know, which which version, which my friend, Dick, my Brian Cook called me hipster Larry the Cable Guy once, which I was like, oh, God, that's good. And uh, and my girlfriend calls me skateboard Mr. Peanut because I have a cane right now. So my <laughs> leg screwed up. But, but yeah, when you, when it's disingenuous where you see somebody like, oh, the world's terrible. Like, well, you're starting to sound so depressed that I hope you get help. Or if it's fake, knock it off because that's no way to live. <laughs> That sound means it's time for the laughing round. So it's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laugh. It's with laughs. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Oh, good. Less fatal. Yeah, exactly. Like a lightning round is going to work like a lightning round. All right. Do you eat before a show, and what do you tend to eat? No, no, I can't. I, I learned my lesson in San Francisco where I ate so much House of Nan King before opening for Mark Marin at the Purple Onion that I couldn't see straight on stage. So now I've learned my lesson about eating before shows. I won't do it. Do you eat something after a show? Oh, afterwards. The world the world is my oyster. Yeah, I go nuts afterwards. Got to eat sometime. I do yeah, shows no, I every meant, night. I meant you have a specific thing to you. Oh, eat. no, no. I don't have like yeah. it. Usually if, if, if it was close by a Del Taco, those 24-hour drive throughs baby, they keep me alive. Um, do you remember the first funny thing or joke that you made, uh, made you think you could be a comedian? I was always uh I was real obnoxious, which is I think how a lot of comedians start. Like, I'm think I'm funny. It's like, no, you're just the loudest one at a party. But I remember when I was starting to write stuff down that I thought was comedy. And I didn't know what how to start yeah. stand up. I'd seen it on TV, <laughs> but I'm like, well, I'm taking these writing classes, but I'm not good at writing. Like and I I'm like, but I'm, these things are jokes. And I I think I wrote it was something about ma- making a 
it was real dumb. It was like going on a double, like on a Dutch date, on a double Dutch date, and with wooden shoes and jump roping. And it was just, and it was, was it was so stupid. It was like, like what a double date. It was a Dutch date, you know, which yeah, meant no, we it. had to. It was real hard to jump rope in those wooden shoes. And that's and good. It's so dumb. I think you could bring that one back. That and I think I wrote down what, but my favorite, like that, never made it to the stage was uh, with uh, a cesarean section. What is that? The part of the salad bar with the croutons and the Parmesan cheese. It's a big fan. <laughs> big fan of that one. Um, what's the hardest song you can play on guitar? Ooh, good question, <laughs> man. I just started trying to figure out "Cowboy Song" by Thin Lizzy. There's the two solos. I can fall through the first one in an embarrassing way to where I know my fingers were in the right place, but it won't sound like it, and I haven't even tried to learn the second one yet. Um, if you could steal any joke and no one would ever know, and you'd personally not feel guilty about it Ugh. from anyone ever, what would it be? There's two my two favorite jokes <clears throat> in stand-up. Uh, one is Matt Knudsen's. Joke about imagine ordering from a waitress everything you get at a buffet. And it just him taking on the character of, uh, yes, I'd like to start with some spaghetti, two chicken wings, a jello cube, and a few beets. And for my next plate, I will have a hard shell taco filled with ham cubes. I will take one bite of that and realize it was a horrible mistake. I'll have some ice cream. And I'll have some salad. And he just goes on and on about all the bullshit. And I was like, ooh, that's so funny. And then the second one is uh, Andy Ritchie, RIP, Andy Ritchie, passed away uh, about a year and a half ago. But this one is one of those ones that just caught me off guard. That's Now that I'm thinking of jokes, I'm thinking even more and more jokes. But he's like, what if Ray Parker Jr. recorded the song Ghostbusters without there ever having been a film, Ghostbusters. And he just pretends to be in the studio like, all right, Ray, we're ready to go on one. Take one. Here we go, rolling. And he's like, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. And they're like, all right, cut. What's he talking about? Are there ghosts? Is this a song? (laughs) Just the idea of Ray Parker Jr. being a, a delusional, paranoid, schizophrenic, singing about ghosts for no reason. Oh, that one, it still brings me joy. <laughs> That's, that premise brings me joy. What's the dumbest thing you've bought in the last two years? Man, most everything. Dumbest. Bagpipes. <laughs> theremin. Panini Press was a gift. <laughs> a Jeep. You're just walking around your apartment and you're like, okay. Everything. I don't, all I have is just free time and disposable income because that's what happens when you're single and you don't have kids and you still have a one-bedroom apartment when you're 40. You just get by whimsical shit. Do you have a favorite joke, Joe? Do you want to do that one? We have had enough lightning questions. I know. Well, just when I think of street jokes, I think of – do you remember John Fox? He was like an Andrew Dice Clay-style dude. It's either him – like when I was like a little kid watching stand-up, it was either him – or the amazing Jonathan. It's not so much a street joke, but where the amazing Jonathan's doing all his magic. And he's like, 
watch this. I'm like a bird up here. And he puts a handkerchief over his hand and pulls it off. And then he's just holding up the middle finger. And I thought, like, that was the epitome of comedic genius. Like, it's a magician, so it'll be a bird. It's a, the other kind of bird. It's his middle finger. And that taught me, yeah, that was like. It's everything you ever knew about And that. it was still, but it was still, you know. The the dist- what do they call it magic the distraction or the oh, yeah yeah that still had that it had the magic element it had the joke element I was like this guy's gonna be big <laughs> and then John Fox was just this dirty comedian we weren't supposed to listen to when we were you know nine or ten years old and uh, it was just jokes like you know little Billy <laughs> little Billy the guy's gonna say a letter of the alphabet you can't say uh, any swear words. All right, we're going to start with A. And Billy's hands up in the air, and the teacher's like, oh, he's going to say, like, ass or anal or something. Okay. Sally, what do you got? Apple. Good apple. All right. Okay. B. Oh, Billy's raising his hand. He's sweating. He wants, oh, God. No, he's going to say bitch or bastard. So we can't have, okay. Uh, Jimmy, what do you got for B? Baseball. Good one. C. Oh, we know what he's going to say. He's really going nuts on this one. And so they get all the way down the alphabet to R. And he's been raising his hand for everyone. The teacher's like, well, I can't think of anything for R. All right, Billy, R. And Billy just goes, rats with big fucking dicks this long. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> he got a picture, this blustering, coked-up alcoholic saying it. <laughs> That's a good one, right? That's great. Right. <laughs> he pauses just like, still the comedic timing. Even if you know street jokes, you can't deliver them unless you have the timing right. So, ah, oh, I can't believe I just remembered that one. <laughs> you nailed every point. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of Good One. Death of the Party, as well as Kyle's other truly tremendous other albums, are all available on iTunes. If you're hearing this and live in the Buffalo metro area, hello. But also Kyle Kinane will be at the Helium Comedy Club May 18th through 20th, and uh, you should go. You can follow him on Twitter, at Kyle Kinane. Jordan Bell is our producer. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on iTunes. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Have a good one. Next week on Good One, Horatio Sands. <laughs> Some people would be think that's terribly depressing, but <laughs> my character, <laughs> I wanted my character to be a victim of a robbery. <laughs> and and so that's why he's in the wheelchair. Got it. And, uh, and I know that's really sad, but I, I, just, I just, you know, with it, that guy's personality, because he's very happy and kind of jovial, I felt that that was kind of, I can get away with it. Join us every Monday for a new episode of Good One.